The Incomparable Number 424 September 2018 Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. We're going to talk about another Miyazaki movie. That's right, the films of Hayao Miyazaki, the classic Japanese animation director, as directed by our very own John Syracuse. John, good evening. Hello. What movie have you chosen for us to watch this evening? Well, today, all of us except for Merlin are going to dutifully watch uh, Princess Mononoke. What movie did Merlin watch? That's a good question. <laughs> Wait a minute. What show is this? I don't even know what's happening now. This may be the wrong show. Merlin Man is here. He is one of the people who watched Princess Mononoke. Hi, Merlin. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me. Uh, Aline Sims also watched Princess Mononoke. Hello. Hello. And Steve Lutz is also here. Hello, Steve Lutz. Yes, I wrote in on my red elk so I could join you all on today's <laughs> podcast. That's good. What the heck is this? I have never seen this movie before, and I have lots of questions, most of which are just what, huh? Um, yeah, this is a very, very strange movie. 1997, very strange movie. Everybody loves it. Tell me, where does this slot in the chronology of uh, Miyazaki movies, just so I can wrap my head around that? John, you're, you're going to help me tonight. This is, this is, I need your help. Oh, actually, I have a, it's not an opening statement, but it's, it's a framing. Please help us. Um, so the, th- the thing to know about Princess Mononoke, uh, if, as, as an American, is that to my recollection, this is the first time anybody tried to, to sell, figuratively and literally, a Miyazaki movie to the American public, right? So Disney bought the rights to it or whatever, and they're like, we're going to, you know, these films are incredibly popular in Japan. Uh, everyone in Japan loves Miyazaki, but most people who aren't uh, anime nerds in America haven't even heard of it. So I bet we can we can make it big in America, too. So let's get the rights to one of these things. They put it out on Miramax, uh, and they had trailers that ran in front of American movies and American theaters of, like, you know, there was all sorts of text about uh, Japan's favorite uh, director, and the, the movie had broken records in Japan, and so like they got everything going for it. Tacked on a PG-13 rating for some reason? Well, I think that the reasons are probably valid. I don't know. <laughs> Cartoon beheadings. <laughs> yeah. They didn't really give it a particularly wide release, and they didn't support it very well, but they, they tried a little bit, and I think the, the outcome of that was like, we try, but it just doesn't seem like Americans are that into this type of movie. And I thought when, when it was being advertised, I thought, this has a shot. Because, I, I, you know, I was always sort of surprised to hear Jason say that it, it was he didn't understand it, it was strange, it was weird. In the grand scheme of things, it is less weird than, you know, Spirited Away. Or, totally, or totally. Or even Totoro yeah, or absolutely. Kiki. Like, yeah. it has a fairly conventional American movie structure in terms of... it. it graded on the Miyazaki curve. Obviously, it's not, you know, particularly straightforward, but it's it's not like, hey, nothing happens in this movie, or it's not totally weird. It's not like Howl's Moving Castle, where it's just, it's baffling from an American plot structure pr- mm. perspective. Uh, so my memories of this movie are, I'm going to get to see a Miyazaki movie in a theater, which I did, uh, but it was a, a fairly obscure theater. And I came out of it thinking... Uh, I think a lot of people in America would like this movie because it is close enough to an American action-adventure movie that it might be accessible uh, to uh, American audiences. Uh, but it just it didn't open wide enough. So uh, all of that being said, uh, it seems like uh, at least some of you didn't have that reaction to this movie. That's accurate. <laughs> I Actually, I, 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 I was thinking back and thinking like, 
I think Nausicaa and Castle in the Sky are both more accessible to this movie, let alone Totoro and Kiki. Uh, this this felt much more like Spirited Away to me in the sense that I got... It is more accessible than Spirited Away because Spirited Away is sort of super weird and mystical in a way that this is not. This is a fantasy story. Um, but still, there were several points where I thought to myself, um, something would happen and I'd be like, okay. Like, just with Spirited Away, where it's like, I don't know why that happened. I don't know what that means. I don't really understand it. I'm just going to go with it. Or as my wife put it or, when we were watching, she fell asleep at some point in the middle, and when she woke up, things didn't make any sense, and she couldn't decide if that's because she missed something, or if that was just the movie. Which, I, I and I said to her, I, I don't think it was, I don't think you missed it. I think it's just the movie. It's a, it's a very strange movie. To me, I found it, yeah, I, I found it way less accessible than something like Nausicaa or Castle in the Sky. Even. Yeah, the those two you named are the other two accessible action adventure Miyazaki movies. Like they have a fairly standard plot. The particulars are weird. You mean Porco Rosso is hard to get into. I think Porco Rosso is pretty pretty easy to understand. Uh, the main character is a pig. It's a pig in a plane. What's so hard to understand about that? Pig in a plane. Yeah. It's a, hey, it's a <laughs> yeah. pig. I, I um I uh, I kid a little bit. I this is probably the third time I've seen this. Uh, my daughter and my wife adore this movie. This is probably the third time I've seen it, and I must have had some kind of an episode because I I just don't remember this. I've seen it at least twice before, and I remember really really enjoying it. And I didn't I didn't disenjoy it this time. I liked it, but I uh, two 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 just quick thoughts is that um, this is off the top of my head. This in some ways maybe feels like one of the more Japanese of his movies, where so many of his movies that I door uh i mean totoro i guess yeah totoro needs to be in japan but stuff like Howl is obviously in some kind of europe ditto for kiki uh and so i the second part is uh the more i i was following along i i kept kind of feeling like i almost need to google this like i bet there's a lot of <laughs> japanese no no in the sense that i bet there's a lot of stuff that people in japan would know about these uh kind of maybe folk things legendary things lord asano i i mean like yeah, I just felt like there was stuff I was probably missing. And I mean, it's not impossible to follow. And there's a lot about it that I mean, you if you're if you sit down and watch it like a gentleman, you can totally understand what's going on. But <laughs> there, there is a I, I don't know if I would say that this is a I don't think of it in terms of like whether it's accessible so much as it, it is very unconventional by by American standards in a way that I think is actually really good. And I like the fact that there's we'll surely talk about how there's there's not as much kind of um, moral duality in a classic american way as usual so yeah i just it, it's just that while i was watching it this time and i i have to admit my attention was a little bit split um and uh i was like what? wait a minute now what, what, what so you're what? watching in a non-gentlemanly fashion absolutely mm -hmm. yeah but it's it, i mean it's it's a it's a, a gorgeous stunning movie my context for this is but long before i ever knew what miyazaki was or what anime was i do absolutely remember the buzz about this I guess in 97 or 98. I think it must have been up for an Oscar or something because there was lots of buzz about this. And then when Spirited Away came along, I was like, oh, yeah, that's the guy that did the Princess Mononoke movie you didn't see. But I, I do remember it getting buzz at the time. Oh, part of the buzz, by the way, I forgot to mention this, was that they got an all-star cast yeah. to do the the English dub. They got, like, American movie stars to do the dub, and they got an American writer to write a script instead of just, you know, having translators translated. They got... uh Neil Gaiman did the... Uh, the this English writer, but yeah. English. Well, you know, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> close enough. Uh, and it, I can tell you, of all of the dubs of Miyazaki movies, this is one of the best ones. Now, the casting, you can quibble with, because I don't, I don't know if anybody... Who, who watched the uh, the dub? 
I switched to the dub. I watched enough of it to hear Ashitaka sound about 10 years older than I expected him to and turned it off. Anyone else? Yeah. Yeah, subs. I did subs. I'm oh, sorry. I mean, I'm sorry. I apologize. I did. I did dubs. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was that's um, Dr. Manhattan is uh, the prince. Yeah. And you got Claire Gaines and Minnie oh. Driver. Yeah. That was what's his name? Crudup? Yeah. Billy, Billy Crudup. Crudup. Billy Crudup. Yeah. Yeah. Almost famous guy. So, well, so the, I think the main casting issues for, for the dub that people complain about are Billy Bob Thornton. as uh, <laughs> Oh, that's right. He, he does stick out a little. He, yeah. yeah. As Gigo. Is that his name? But I but I sort of see I I got why they cast him. For that character, I kind of, I kind of got it. It's very 1997 casting, yeah, it, it, but it doesn't, it doesn't match the Japanese character. But I think it works in the, the structure of the movie, especially with the script. Uh, and uh, Jillian Anderson as the wolf, which she, her performance is a little bit weird. Well, it's, it's probably less weird than the the performance that I saw while I was doing the subs, where the wolf mother is clearly being voiced by a dude, which is a little odd. You don't know what wolf. Uh, female wolf sound like <laughs> that's a good point that's problematic steve well it's true i don't live amongst wolf culture yeah. so you know uh, anyway um, i i have a great affection for this dub not because it's true to the original but because i feel like it is its own thing and uh you know name actors usually actually is a curse usually you want like professional voice actors not just like famous movie star people and so some of the performances are a little bit shaky, but I find it endearing. And part of it kind of like cars with Pixar is that uh, both of my kids watched this movie a lot growing up. And this was before they could read. And so uh, I've seen the dub many, mm. many, many times uh, to the point now where, where the subtitled version almost feels like a little bit alien to me because I've seen it so many fewer times than, than the dub. So I'm not sure I would recommend the dub. Watching the Japanese one is definitely better to do it, but watch it at least to appreciate how you can do an adaptation of a Japanese screenplay and change it. Like, you know, not be a purist about it. Change it. Make new jokes and new things, but basically get the same point across and have it not be embarrassing and bad. Because the other direction you can go is just straight translation, and that is at least true to the original, but it can be very confusing. So I think this this script uh, strikes a good balance, hmm. the English script. Hmm. So, uh, Aline, what did you think? Uh, just if you have an opening, uh, some opening thoughts here. We haven't heard from you. So this was one of the first Miyazaki movies I saw. I think it was, I think the marching order was Kiki's Delivery Service, Spirited Away, and then Princess Mononoke. Um, because I had a friend who was slowly, he was, um, appalled that I had not watched any Miyazaki <laughs> and was like, here's this DVD. You're going to watch this tonight. And so, um, it was weird. It was the, the first time watching it was weird. And it's not a movie I return back to all that frequently. Like I watch Spirited Away from time to time. I watch Howl's Moving Castle and Kiki's Delivery Service. I very, very rarely come back to Princess Mononoke. And when I was watching it tonight before recording, I remembered why I don't watch it a whole lot. And it's because the art is so evocative and not in a pleasant way in a lot of places like you know you've got the the i don't know the hog god with like the crusty gross eyes oh, yeah. and you have the little squiggly demons coming out of things and it just it's visually very off-putting for me and so i don't return to it all that often because it just doesn't have 
you know, Spirited Away is, is weird. And I understand that there are a lot of things I'm probably not understanding about it, but it's pretty to look at. And this is kind of on the opposite side where there are a couple of scenes where it's like, oh, yeah, that's really, ooh, sparkly dragonflies. I can get on board with that. But the, you know, just all of the the kind of grossness associated with humanity and what humanity had done in this um, time and place is just a lot to take in. Yeah. It's um, talking about the themes of it. Definitely. This is, we were, we were joking before we got started that it's like, somebody's like, I cracked the code. This is, this is a movie about environmentalism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. How, how did you work that one? Hmm, out? <laughs> interesting. Cause of course the plot, we haven't talked a lot about it, but this is a, a, a fantasy adventure set in uh sort of old, like Japan of, of, you know, 500 years ago, 700 years ago, there's samurai in it, but there are also spirits. There are these forest spirits and there's a, there's a, uh, uh, there are wolf gods and there are, there are boar gods. Um, and there's the, the, uh, there's the forest spirit itself, which there are a couple different manifestations. There's these cute little guys who have these little round faces that kind of ratchet around and are really weird. And then of course at night, they, of course at night it becomes mm-hmm. the, what the traveler the the, the night walker the night walker and then yeah. it's a giant kind of transparent thing that floats and walks around um and uh and the idea here is that the humans are kind of invading the forest and uh building up their industry there's the the town iron town that's got the giant forge the idea here is that they're cutting down the trees they're invading the forest and they're they're uh killing off the power of the forest spirits and they're becoming more kind of bestial and not being able to talk as much and they kind of fight back and the humans are also fighting amongst themselves and that's that's really what this movie is about is about that kind of interaction there, there are action set pieces and there's characters and well this is that's really what all of miyazaki's movies that we've seen are about it's just they're not usually so on the nose right right i, I think that's right i think if you, you can't really expect that you're going to go see a Miyazaki movie that isn't going to involve either ecology, flying things, or both. Uh, that is Miyazaki. That's his bit. But here it is, very straightforward. It is basically, there are humans, they're raping the land, and the uh, the spirits of the land are unhappy about it. That is basically what is happening in this story. The one thing that's a little bit of a spin on his usual narrative is that uh, Ashitaka, the, 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 the um, protagonist of the story Our here, prince, yes. Prince, Prince Ashitaka um, is trying to find kind of a balance between mankind's ravaging of the land to, to make iron and uh, and nature. Whereas I think generally in, in the Miyazaki's I've seen, he falls pretty heavily on the side of, well, mankind is pretty useless, so let's let nature take over. And here he, he allows his, his hero to sort of at least make an attempt to see if he can make the two work together. Um, you know, whether, whether that's possible or not, I think depends on your interpretation of the end, but that's, that's a little bit different from what I've seen from Miyazaki before. It may seem on the nose and that the themes are not hidden, but the thing that, the thing that stands out to me in this movie, the thing that is, I think the least conventional about it, because I, I think, you know, if you just did the outline, there's a prince, he has a curse, he goes, try to save his curse. And then he ends up stumbling on this town and this guy, like it's a fairly straightforward plot, but the part that, that seems unconventional is that. Almost all of the characters in this movie, maybe maybe all of them, um, have understandable motivations that you can identify with at various times. The, the 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 line that is thrown around a lot about this movie is "There's no bad guy in this movie," which is not 100 percent true. 
uh, but it's close. And that like, and and that's where I think this movie is less uh, preachy about the the environmental message is there, but it doesn't so clearly say. And by the way, the people who are on the side of nature, they are a hundred percent right. It doesn't say that at all. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't say it's. It doesn't say that it's simple because there's there's factionalism interspecies and interforest dweller that that was one of my favorite parts of it was that you know everybody has their reasons and it it was it was not clear-cut in that sense yeah and they're good reasons like so lady eboshi is a great example lady eboshi comes off kind of villainous you know in that she is she's obviously cutting down all the trees and she wants to kill the forest animals uh right so she seems like she's she's the bad guy right but she sure the movie does. takes yeah movie takes great pains to show you that she has her reasons too. Like, so she's saving the lepers and she's reemploying the girls from the brothel and she's trying to make a town for people and she's kind to her people. And, you know, it, like, but she also does some, some pretty awful things and does abandon them at the end, but then goes like, she seems pretty mercenary towards those people. If you ask me, I mean, honestly, she, she rescues the girls from slave labor, but they're effectively undergoing slave labor at her place as well, but, but they're not because they're they're doing they're doing it by choice, and the the uh, social hierarchy is inverted where the women are on top in that town. Like it's all you know, it's I I, I don't know. Maybe I identify with Lady Eboshi a lot more. I don't see her as as a pure villain, um, and what she's doing, and you know, like I, I see her as perhaps the most you know up with women part of this movie, and I don't fault her for most of the things she's doing because if you think of the world that she's living in and what she's had to do to achieve what she's achieved and the kind of place that she's trying to make she's not like fake kind to her people i i feel like she's actually kind to her people in the times that she's kind to them even the men um she does have her own motivations and tries to get ahead but it seems motivated by higher ideals yeah i mean you could argue that she is you know, she's acting in the best interests of the humans and of her town. And that is not necessarily what we would read as being evil, other than the fact that the end result is destroying the forest, right? Like she's, she's part of society destroying the forest. Although I agree with Steve, like the movie kind of wants to have it that she's also yeah, a little bit, a little bit evil. Well, she makes, she makes guns, you know, she's not enormously bothered when a couple of her men roll down the cliff. Right, but but, part, but I, I read part of that is like, that's what she has to do. When, when she hears that the women are fighting for their lives at the fortress and she's off trying to get the, the deer God's head. She's just like, ah, eh, they got, they've got weapons and ammo. Whatever. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. <laughs> so, so the, the closest thing you have to evil is Jigo and his band, right? Because but he's too whimsical to be evil. <laughs> It's voiced by Billy Bob Thornton. She's doing what she has to do to get ahead in a man's world, right? Sometimes she has to be mercenary and, and hard-hearted and, and get things done. But, like, when they bring back the people, she thanks them for saving them, so on and so forth. Whereas uh, Jigo is also kind of a mercenary, and but he's not super invested in it. Like, towards the end of the movie, he's like, well, can't win against fools. He's not, like, totally on board with, like, we got to kill the forest spirit. He just wants to be rich. Like, he's he's got his motivations. He's not unkind unnecessarily or cruel, but the mercenary band he's got with them, those are the people who set up the villagers on top of the landmines in the boar battle. And that's pretty much straight up evil. So I feel like the emperor sure. is the is the only real villain. And he's not really in this movie. It's the emperor and the emperor's men. And everyone else is just a person living in the emperor's world trying to get ahead using uh, whatever way they have. And, and as was already pointed out, uh, Ashitaka and San, San's not 
hundred percent, you know, you're not supposed to believe that what she thinks is right, that the humans are super evil and they need to just go sure. away. And, and Ashitaka is trying to bridge the two worlds, but also he just wants to cure his curse, but he's also ready to die. Like, well, and that's, that's the center of the movie, right? Is that you've got this guy who is the prince, but he's been kicked out. I thought that was a moment that also was one of those like, oh, okay, where he's like, I got to go. I got to get out of here. I'm going to cut my hair and I'm going to go to the West and I'm going to try to figure this out. And they're like, well, you know, you can never return and you're dead to us. I'm like, oh, wow, that's harsh. Oh, was that in the, uh, in the dub? In the because dub, they're... yeah. In the dub, it's like, you, you got to go, you, you got to go and you can, you can, uh, you will never, you'll never return. He's like, yep. I, I think they explain the top knot cutting as well in the dub. The, the, that's at the beginning, the dungeon master says, that yeah. <laughs> the dungeon master that's exactly who that is the dungeon master the one throwing <laughs> the dice says that he has to go forever no in in the sub it's it's basically you know well you got to get out of here because you're cursed and you're going to mess things up but you know go and seek your fate and maybe things will work out for you but they they aren't like you can't ever come back here interesting interesting because I, I i switched over and i was noticing that at least in my version the captions were essentially captioning the dub um on the disney blu-ray mm-hmm. which i had mm-hmm. so so i was like well i could listen to the japanese and read what the dub says or i could just listen to the dub at that point although the dub has a narrator there may the... be two sets of subs on yours mine has mine has both it has the uh the hearing impaired one which probably is just the the dub and the other one's more of a translation time to take a brief break and tell you about our sponsor for this episode of the incomparable it's brought to you by our wonderful friends at pingdom now, Pingdom is a brilliant service because they help keep your websites and the sites that you love on the internet online. Pingdom monitors your site so you don't have to. You don't have to sort of stay awake 24 hours a day hitting reload on your web browser. Is that something you could possibly do? No, you can't. But Pingdom can. And they will give you real-time feedback so you'll know what's going on at all times. Stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Pingdom detects around 13 million outages every month, more than 400,000 a day. And it doesn't matter if you're a startup or a small shop or a Fortune 500 company, you need alerts about any critical website issues, whether it's your homepage not loading or your shopping cart not working. Individual pieces of your website can be checked with Pingdom, and you might not notice. They might be less obvious when they break, but no less important. Pingdom lets you customize how you're alerted, depending on the severity of an outage, and they'll track and analyze your website's load time so you can see what's affecting user experience. If you have a site, no matter the size, you need to try Pingdom. And there's a no-fuss approach to get you started. All they need is the URL you want to monitor. They will take care of the rest. That's it. You put in your address, they will figure it out. Go to pingdom.com slash snell right now. You'll get a 14-day free trial and no credit card is required. And when you sign up, use the code snell, that's my name, at checkout and you'll get 30%, that's huge, off your first invoice. Thank you, Pingdom, for supporting the incomparable. The prince is cast out or leaves or whatever happens with him and he is kind of he's coming from it from the human perspective of he's trying to figure out what's going on here but he's he's definitely our hero and we're, we're following him and then on the other side we have uh san who is human but but taken in by the wolf god and 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 raised by them and so she's coming she's kind of she's human so she's kind of toward the humans but she is sort of rejects her humanity and i think that that is a very interesting 
interesting core of the movie where those two characters have their inner connection where they have lots of things in common but kind of not in common and i thought that i thought that was a really strong part of this movie that those two characters uh kind of joust with each other but they're also kind of allies and he saves her and all of that is going on it's also very non-standard you expect the kind of you know a disney movie kind of uh relationship there that does not happen like not really they're they're kind of friends at the end and they're like oh, i'll i'll come but into the forest and check in on you sometime but you, you don't remember the scene where bell chews up a bunch of food and feeds it to the beast yeah she she saves him at one point he saves her and they don't end up together <laughs> yeah like they they say that like that we it's not that you would think that all right so fine they they're they're equal during the movie but surely at the end she comes back to the humans they lived happily ever after as humans surely that's how and it doesn't she goes back to the live in the forest she doesn't want to live with the humans and they'll the idea is that they'll see each other but that she's not gonna be like you're right i'm a human i'm gonna go live with the humans right so they don't actually completely reconcile at what, what they've got going on here um and i think that's part of the the inherent tension of the movie like who wins at the end of the movie right that's that's the question like with no bad guys and, and no winners and no you know who wins and who loses well i guess the emperor doesn't get the head so he's the loser but he was the yeah. only real bad guy thing iron town is destroyed but lady boshi is survived and she's gonna live on there our, our hero gets the curse lifted so that's good but it's not like he settles down with son and they become a happy couple like she goes back to live with the wolves a bunch of the wolves are dead a bunch of the boars are dead the you know like we'll talk about the the end at, at the end i suppose well the implication too is that this is because this is one of the choices john i want to stop you there because one of the choices this movie has is it's not set in a fantasy realm it's set in japan in 1500 or whatever 1400 and so i think hanging over this whole thing is the idea that um that uh, nature isn't going to win at least on a certain scale that humanity will continue to grow and build and build more and build cities and all of that and i i feel like in the ending that's hanging over the whole thing it's like you know the humans are going to keep building because we this is the real world we know what happens japan has nature it also has you know giant human cities and that and that for me that's an interesting part of it is that um you know it's it's not resolved it's like and they lived happily ever after nor is it like and now the humans decided they wouldn't build in the forest like no we know where this story is going and that the the fading away of the nature spirits is probably going to continue yeah that's that's the the story ultimately it's telling is why don't we have giant talking animals right now (laughs) right and this story is well you did but then this story happened and you know it was like they could have just destroyed everything instead it kind of came back to life but then splattered down and everything and so you know no more giant talking animals and we get our normal modern world but this kind of thing did happen so it's the way to have it's the way to have a fantasy movie set in the real world you have to have some story for how the fantastical elements disappear except for maybe the kodamas because maybe they're still there right that's the little you know teaser at the end well and the, the deer god is still there in some form or not, form or another based on you know what i read in the subs at least you know he's he's no longer the night walker and he's no longer actually physically walking the earth but he's life and death and it, it, the, the sense i get is you know the deer god is still all around us he's just not going to be physically present any longer yeah because they still have those you know animism based religions and everything in japan to to varying degrees and so that's that that's the living on aspect I suppose. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, Ashitaka, our prince. Um, he rides a an adorable red elk. Yes, he rides a lactobacillus rich probiotic beverage named Yakul. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, uh, adorable. 
I will, is adorable. I will say. And 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 um, this movie gets it gets you pretty early, right? Because there's this kind of spectacular, fun fight scene where there's a giant kind of like pig demon with black wormy things all over it, and he's got his arrows and and uh, you know he he he's fighting them and then he gets you know he gets grievously wounded and that sets up the rest of the movie and why he has to leave and go out of where he's been living is that he's been cursed he's got the black mark on his arm because he was attacked by the demon before um, kind of killing the demon pig uh and that's so you know that's his sister gives him gives her her a little uh, crystal dagger or whatever and and yes in the dub they literally say okay you are dead to us forever and then he leaves which is like it's it's a bit harsh. Oh, it, uh, on the crystal dagger thing, that, that's another uh, good old uh, unconventional uh, Miyazaki or, uh, you know, uh, Eastern moment there. So, yeah, the sister gives him the crystal dagger. That's his sister? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, she seems like a love interest in the subs. <laughs> no, she's much younger than him. Um, and in any uh, Western movie, you'd be like, that dagger is going to be important later in the movie. Right, and right, right. It'll be important that his sister gave it to him or his, he'll have flashbacks to his sister or whatever. No. Nope. No, I mean, he does give it He does give it to San as a gift, but, it, you know, is he remembering her from the dagger? Is it is super important to the plot later? It's not. And no. wh- so why is that scene in the movie? To show that this this is a thing that happened when you leave, you leave loved ones behind, and here's someone who's going to miss you the most, and they sneak out and give you the dagger. That's the point of the scene, not, oh, it's foreshadowing, because that, that dagger will become the key element that defeats the bad guy in the end of the movie. And I find that type of thing refreshing, that a scene can just be what it is, and what it is is fine, and that you have, you know, I talk about this in a lot of the other Miyazaki movies, that you take the time to have a scene like that, even though in some story group you could say, well, we can cut that one. It doesn't actually add anything to movie, right? It's right. like, no, don't cut that. That's, that's you know, life's what happens when you're making other plans or whatever the saying is, that this is the movie. It's happening right now, and we need that scene. Not everything has to wire directly to some other part of the plot. Mm-hmm. It does kind of help him find, like, just as a minor plot point, he finds San by kind of seeing the glint through all the guck at the end, but he probably would have pulled her out anyway. Um, it's nice to have movies like this though, or moments like that because they're so like in every single movie I watch, I'm waiting for like the, the lingering shot on the crystal dagger or whatever it is. And you know, you take a mental note of that, like that's going to be a key to something later. And it's really nice when it's not. It's, you know, to John's point, it's really nice because that's that's life, right? Like my mom gives me a necklace and I'm going to wear it and remember it, but it's not going to be like the key to solving a murder mystery later mm. on, I hope. It's going to save your life when you're trapped in an elevator. Right, yeah. That necklace that my mom gave me. <laughs> oh, by the way, you know how there's in uh, in lots of especially jokey kind of uh, horror stories, you've got the like, you know, he... We transplanted the murderer's arm. So there was a Simpsons episode about this too. Transport the murderer's arm onto oh, yeah. your arm, and then and then uh, it, but it's an evil arm, and it tries to strangle people. That's literally what happens in this movie, and I really enjoyed it. That his arm is not just cursed; his arm will just decide to um, aim arrows at various people and behead them, or cut off their arms, or whatever. And it's like his arm has a mind of its own. He has to at one point he has to wrestle his own arm back. Um, because it's cursed. And uh, I actually found that really fun. And also, it's kind of gross when uh, he shoots off somebody's arm and, and somebody else's head. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I saw the PG-13 rating at the beginning, but I was not really expecting the arms to go flying off in that one scene. <laughs> yeah. So I was kind of aghast. And then the one guy's head pops off yeah. and there's that yeah. hilarious noise that goes along with so, it. There's multiple dismemberments and uh, multiple beheadings. There's a body riding around on a horse for a while with no head. Yeah. Yeah, hmm. it's great. It, yeah. It's so clean, too, yeah. for an arrow. It's like, whoa. Yeah, it looks like a Warner Brothers ham. And they're not afraid to use blood because, like, the boars are... The volume <laughs> of think? blood in this movie is Oof. probably greater than any other Miyazaki movie yes. just based on the boar blood alone, right? But then yeah. other things... Like, it, it treads a fine line because it, it plays the... The dismemberment and beheadings, not for laughs, but lightly. Like it's it's like a it's a gag moment when the head pops off and the other guy turns his horse around. There's almost a Scooby Doo noise that goes along with it, right? They, and they do bloop, and it, and it flies ten feet into the air. Like a suddenly like a black Robocop kind of sense of humor. We're like, whoa! I didn't know what this gun would do. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Although the thing that has always struck me as a little weird is right. So his his right arm is the possessed one and it's super strong we see him bend the the big samurai sword right so it's right. super strong mm-hmm. but how does having a super strong arm make your arrow is able to do anything different because all that arm does is pull back the string on the bow and you could pull back the bow the same distance with a regular strength arm so it really doesn't make any sense and you do, but you just say well it is magic so well it, you know. it's like it's like vibrating and moving back and forth i think that's the idea is there's some sort of it puts english on the arrow like a quivering palm kind of thing mm, yeah and then it makes you behead somebody with it with a single arrowhead it doesn't really make any sense mm-hmm. but, but, but I, i'm very i am interested in that idea of like the that that is a fun sequence to me as dark as it is because i like the idea that even as he's still trying to get his feet under him with like what's happening with his arm what is going on you could just his sense of revulsion of like this thing the power of this might be great but it has caused me to do something that my conscience would never allow me to do and he seems you know to have it kind of out of control i thought that was a kind of a nice touch he regrets it he says i shouldn't have fought those samurai like in the beginning as yeah. soon as it happens he's like you know he he even if he was at, at just his normal strength, he's obviously a very skilled warrior. We see that in the very first scene. And it's like he he regrets having to use his skills and regrets it even more when he has to use his supernatural skills. Although they do come in slightly handy towards the end of the movie. But he's he's conflicted. Yeah, I think the arm is an interesting character in its own right. Uh, getting back to what you said there, Jason, because it clearly has triggers. And, you know, it's the, the reason it's cursed is because it's filled with hate towards, you know, the men who shot the boar and caused it pain and so forth and so i mean it has clear things that it reacts to like when the deer god comes by obviously it's 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 set off by that but i mean whenever there's a situation where uh you know like the the animals are being threatened by by mankind or there's some particular uh you know particularly awful thing that the men are doing the hand sort of springs into action at that point and uh so it's 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 not just like an evil hand. It has definite um, aims in life. And, and the curse spreads every time he does something. And every time he sort of, uh, you know, does an evil act with the arm, the, the stain on his thing spread. They show that in a couple of close ups to show that if he, you know, if he lays low and just doesn't do anything, it spreads more slowly than if he actually uses it to bend back someone's sword or whatever. And he he uses it to to save son he uses it towards the end to try to get the head back and it just you know it spreads more and more every time he does that there a little later on we get the um some we, we meet some other characters there is uh because he's like at the village and they're uh they're the people who are bringing in the supplies and there's an attack we get the wolves including where this is where we will we'll meet son as well and we learn about forest spirits it also gets uh, Ashitaka back to talk to people in the village, and of course he meets that uh, that uh, one uh, character 
um, who is uh, what uh, uh, Jacobo, who is the um, uh, Billy Bob Thornton Jigo <laughs> character. So is he a, is he a con man? Is he something else? Is he who knows what he is? It depends on I guess what uh, version of the movie that you're you're watching. But there is a great scene where he's like, "I need to buy some rice. Uh, I got some gold here," and the lady's like, "What?" are you doing <laughs> this isn't money <laughs> yeah that's good too but this is also where we get the the sense with the wolves we meet the wolves here and we we realize that uh that san is is uh is riding on the wolves and that's that that's a, a really weird scene where we see the wolves and there's a rider on them but it takes a while before we get that scene where we're close enough that we can see her looking at him looking at her kind of down by the water yeah, it's, the, it's their bloody meat cute yeah there's also many many creatures and people go over the side of a cliff uh as they as they kind of like fight through the little uh, the group of people who are bringing the supplies back to the town uh people fall off the edge of a cliff and uh they don't all die some of them land in the water and he pulls them out and they they aren't dead they're just wounded and he brings some of them back to iron town so there's a there's a bunch of stuff going on in this part of the movie that there's a lot a lot happens in this movie yeah, and the the bloody meat cute i like too because it is another another uh not you know again very conventional movie in its structure but in the particulars it's just slightly off center and so he meets his his girl the love interest right he doesn't see her across the river and say who is that beautiful girl he sees her sucking blood from her mother wolf and she turns and looks at him and her face is entirely covered with blood and then there's a beat and then she spits it out so that's you know that's unconventional there is no heavenly light and god rays coming through the trees revealing her taking a bath or removing her clothing or whatever she is <laughs> right. absolutely covered in blood and she spits it out and and i love that but she, and she also her her reaction to being noticed is so great too because it's they could they could have they could have added an extra comedy beat where she pauses after the response and then spits out the blood, but she's kind of just nonplussed. You know, she's she's neither she's not embarrassed. She's not. I I, I like that yeah. part a lot. And I like that the wolves are always wolves. They're like, can I can I tear them apart? They at one point they grab his head and shake it. They want to eat everything inside. They are never not wolves. <laughs> this, this is the point where I suddenly had much amusement about the fact that Disney released this movie in the United States because I was trying to imagine Mononoke being slotted into the official Disney princess pantheon <laughs> <laughs> with her face just smeared in gore, spitting out a long stream of wolf blood. Each princess would come onto the stage and do their twirl <laughs> to see see her show up at the uh, the the, prin- the princess breakfast in the magic kingdom <laughs> that's right no, there'd be a fountain with with blood shooting out of her mouth or yeah, something her, her, her three second animation would be hand wipe spit blood hand wipe spit blood <laughs> i'm just imagining the parade of sort of carriages with beautiful horses coming down the road and then uh, you know she's riding on the back of a giant spirit wolf Sure. Oh, but it's a Julie Taymor wolf. Like there's people inside of it with sticks holding it. <laughs> no, no, because that's something else that happens in this movie later is that you get the uh, the the weird like people oh, inside. Uh, this is a very upsetting movie. The the skins of the um of the boars. Mm-hmm. It's so creepy. They they move like they move around like caterpillars or something. Yeah. Super weird. They move around like people walking underneath a big skin. Because they can't, they can't move like a boar. I don't think that, but they move more smoothly than that. They feel like I had a long period where I was like, are there really people under there, or is this some other creepy magical thing? And then yeah, they look like bugs to me. Yeah, there's multiple people under there. It's like people walking with the sheet, and the sheet just brushes along yeah, the ground. That's the reveal of it, but. 
but before we see them it does it does seem almost otherworldly it seems fake it's not they're not a real animal but what are they and then of course it is revealed that yes they're just people under there it's just it's just two kids standing on each other's shoulders wearing a jacket yeah, and pretending to be an adult. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be creepy though. I don't know though. For for creepiness, I don't I don't think for creepiness in this movie you can beat Well, first first I would have said the apes because those oh, apes are apes. super creepy. Yeah. But then like two scenes later, the deer god shows up with his human face and and I just wrote holy jeez down in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and his weird smile, right? Oh, and, uh, and they just they freeze frame on it as no. as the, the 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 little plant that they she put in front of uh, Ashitaka dies. Right, he he goes over to it and it dies. That's your you know, that's another thing. He's the the god of life and death, which they mm. emphasize several times. But when you first see him, it's like oh, everything grows. But if you watch his footsteps, they mm-hmm. grow and die. They grow and die. Comes over to the plant, breathes on it, dead. Right. So it's, you know... But but that gives life to Ashitaka. Right. Well, then he does a separate thing to give life to Ashitaka where he goes in and... That's and true. He kisses the wound or something. Right. And... Exactly. But but the whole point is, you don't know what it's going to be. Is it going to be death? Is it going to be life? You don't get to pick. You never know. Day deer is the fighter of the night deer. There's yeah. a lot of mouths being put places they probably shouldn't go in this That's movie. That's true, Steve. It's a lot of mouthing. The chewing thing where she chews up the food and everything. The jerky. The baby birding. Yes. Yeah, I thought that was very sweet and played earnestly and came, uh, for me, at least works for me. And I never I never snickered at it and thought it was gross or silly because it's played in a moment in the movie where I felt like I was at a place where I'm willing to accept that and show his tears welling up or whatever, that he is injured and she is helping it, him and she's doing it. You know, like it's not, it wouldn't be that far into her having grown up being literally raised by wolves. And he understands the need for it. I don't know. I, I, I think it's kind of a Grapes of Wrath type moment where it works for me. Well, the thing about that scene that I like is it's such a subversion of the, the prince and the princess kissing. Because if, I mean, if you were to freeze frame some of those shots where she's passing chewed up food into his mouth, you would think, oh, it's a lovely princess to prince kiss. And in fact, it's not that at all, but like the, the tableau of, you know, they're in the beautiful woods and, you know, there's mouth to mouth contact going on there. And, and, but it's a completely different uh, context than you would expect if you were just to, you know, see a freeze frame of it. How do we feel about her jumping back when he says you're beautiful? Is that something that's different in the subs? Nope. No, same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's just, uh, I mean, we've seen that in a lot of Miyazaki movies, particularly, but also in a lot of anime is the, you know, well, I'm, I don't, I don't mean to be the, the, the police here. It's just more like it did seem kind of out of ke- keeping with the rest of it. Well, she's disgusted by him at that point. She's disgusted by his human stench and the fact that he's one of the hated humans. She certainly doesn't see herself as part of his tribe. So, right. I mean, it's, it's like having like an earthworm crawl out of the ground and tell you that it's, that you're beautiful. You know, it's, it's a shock. And she, and she doesn't need his affection. Yeah. Well, but the, the thing is they, in this, they sell it a little bit better in this movie than they do in other movies where male characters just declare that a female character is beautiful because that's their, they're kicking off of the love interest type thing. They sell it here because he's grievously injured and delirious and in shock. And so he may, it, it makes some sense for him to revert to just like, now I'm just in this moment and who knows if I'm dying and I just feel this thing, I'm going to say this thing or whatever. Having her leap back, I think works because my read on it is that, yes, she's raised by wolves, but she is in fact human and has this conflict within her, like Darth Vader, to say, you know, I'm human and I'm an adolescent and I have human adolescent feelings and a need for social contact and everything, but I hate humans and I'm a wolf. And I, you know, so that conflict is there. And him saying that would be, it's like, 
you know, she she is a tween or a teen or whatever, and he is a handsome boy, and they have done these things together. Like, that exists and is a thing. She doesn't want it to exist. She doesn't want to acknowledge any of that part of her, but that part does exist. And in this moment, when that's the thing farthest from her mind, and he's delirious, and he blurts us out that she's beautiful, she leaps back because of surprise, revulsion, and also just, like, not wanting to acknowledge the feelings in herself that that triggered that she may have been feeling about him the whole time. So I, of all the times some male lead in anime thing tells the, the female lead that she's beautiful, I think this one works perhaps the best. I also wonder how much of it is, and, and maybe this is me thinking too deeply about it, but how much is like, she was literally lit- raised by wolves. <laughs> She hasn't been told she's beautiful before. Like, that's a lot to analyze. Because I imagine that she was kind of the hairless, ugly one. So, well, and doesn't the wolf mother call her her beautiful, beautiful, hideous. ugly? <laughs> the the, uh, the, uh, the English script version of it is actually better than the, the subtitle translation. But yeah, it's my my beautiful, lovely, ugly child, or something like that. Parenting is complicated. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Especially if you're a wolf, because like I, I, again with the wolves, like they they uh, the wolves, um, most of the animals know the deal. Like they are cynical about the human and animal relationship. Like they kind of realize their time is down even talking to the 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 wolf mother you know talking to son is like you could you know she she talks to ashitaka like you're a piece of garbage and get away from my daughter and blah 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 but then when they're when he's gone and and and, uh you know moro talks to to uh son he's she says you know like a good mother you could have a life with that boy if you want right like it's it's total different signaling but in the end discussing it it's like look here's the deal there are no easy answers here uh, we're not all going to live together in a big village and, and get to ride on me every day. Like, that's not how this is going to end. So you have to make some hard choices. And she's pretty upfront about it, including upfront about her plan, her plan for her death. And in the end, deciding to be a good parent. And she's, you know, I was I was actually saving my strength to kill a Boshi, but I guess I have to save my daughter. But, you know, pretty right. good parenting for a wolf, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't live among the wolves. You don't know what their parenting is. I don't like. imagine the wolf mothers are the fiercest mothers. They don't have books or YouTube or anything. Not eating the baby girl is a good start. Not eating the human baby. Because yeah. that, that was the whole thing of like the, the humans ran away. We came into yeah. their camp and the humans ran away and left the baby behind. See how horrible humans are? It's like, well, you are a giant wolf and I'm not going to really blame the parents for whatever. Hey, not, not enough meat on a baby. A lot of gristle. You got to fatten her up first. Her up. Yeah, exactly right. Um, I had a spirited away moment with, in the scene in the Iron uh, Village. <laughs> You're not that old, There, Jason. I was spirited away, uh, where <laughs> we get to see the details of working the giant bellows. And he has his like, you know, whoa, kind of like as they're pushing down and as the, and they're like, we, it's hard, isn't it? We work shifts. And then he's like, oh, you work shifts? Yes. We work for four days or whatever it is. Yeah. Like, like, whoa. Yeah. But I, yeah. it, but the details of the bellows and all that, that brought me back to Spirit. Oh, to the, 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 the Spider-Man down in Yeah, the- down in Spirited Away, right? It, it reminded me of that a little bit of the same kind of thing of like, this is a weird, I mean, it's not as quite as fanciful here, but it's the same idea. It's like, look, hard work needs to be done. This is the place where we do the hard work. You aren't trained in doing this yet, but you, you know enough to be like, wow, you people People work hard here in this giant bellows that's we're using to do iron. It's a it's a Studio Ghibli theme. You've got the environment and flying and uh, terrible OSHA violations. That looks like a 
very, yeah. very dangerous bellows to be working. <laughs> well, they, they, they work in shifts. So I like the idea he comes in and Four takes off his shirt. Four shifts. But like, what if your foot, what if your foot gets caught in that thing when it's going down? Yeah, well, they, you can ride on it. He takes off his shirt and he's like, I'm going to show you how strong I am. And then one of them snarkily says, he can't keep up that pace. Like the idea, you can do that for five minutes. They but. wrap you in bandages, they carry you upstairs and you work on rifles. They're throwing yeah. you down to the rifle <laughs> yeah, I think this may be the only uh, Disney related movie to, to include lepers. Yes. <laughs> well, did, Moana didn't have any lepers in it. I mean, no, they, they were in the background. You didn't, you didn't see them. There's quite a bit more cleavage in this than your average Disney princess movie as well. Yeah, they're all they're all wearing those bathrobes and they're, they're all tugging at them to try to you know be modest when the when the man comes in. The bellows. It's very hot. Uh, they they you know they want to cover themselves, but it's also very hot. Yeah. No, yeah. terry cloth is it breathes. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. In the bellows of Iron Town. Irontown. I did enjoy the. Uh, I do enjoy the. Uh, there's banter with the um, the lepers, and they've got their little. They've got the cool little. It's like a fort where they've got the little doors that open and stuff pops out or a thing shoots out and all of that. And they use that uh, in their kind of fortress city that they've got, which is useful when the samurai all come and try to kill them all when the uh, when the, the 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 men are elsewhere. Yeah. That's uh, a classic uh, samurai parable from the early Japanese days is you never never stand under the leper holes. <laughs> <laughs> when you're storming a fortress, avoid the leper holes at all costs. I, I really admire um, Oboshi's leadership. Like, I don't agree with all of the choices that she makes, but she is she's a woman who is in kind of a not great situation, like it's what, 13 to 1500s Japan. There's a lot going on there and she's trying to make this village work. And she sees the, I guess the possibility in people in a way that I, that I admire. And I know we had that conversation or there was discussion earlier about like, is it exploitation? Is it, I don't know. I don't have answers for that, but just the fact that she's bringing in these, these people who societally are not, held in wide esteem or high esteem and is giving them a purpose and a place and, you know, food. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's all really cool. And she really rocks that red lip. It looks really good. That's a good look. (laughs) I like the fact that she's a good fighter too. Like you don't, you just see her walking around and looking regal until the moment when, you know, they have the, you know, San invades the village and there's all the fighting and she's waiting, let her come to me. And she finally gets through and she runs straight at her and surprise the bow. She whips off her outfit and pulls out her little dagger and she's actually pretty skilled which again makes sense how do you get to be lady eboshi you don't get it by being you know uh, a wilting flower or whatever she right. she has skills and she's she's the one who's going to kill the god she gets her arm bitten off and bears it well mm-hmm. like i i find a lot to admire in in her character as well and and i find a lot to admire frankly in, in the town that they've set up and that everybody there seems to be like it doesn't seem like a terrible place to live. No, the little society they've built off that where the the gender roles are some somewhat reversed, not entirely because but, well, obviously they're not reversed. It's just that they're they're more equal, and it seems like a reverse. But I mean, the, the women are you know the men keep to themselves, as they say. You know, it's better than in the towns, and and at least you know the men know to stay to keep to themselves there. But like that, you know, the women are allowed to speak their minds, and obviously they're allowed to fight. Um, but you know, clearly that the men still are horribly sexist, and they talk about how that they're they're tainting the iron by working the bellows and all of that. But it's 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 a really cool kind of uh, kind of not entirely reversal, as you say, but uh, but to see you know more equity in terms of the, the gender roles as compared to what's obviously going on everywhere else in Japan at that time. This is a little uh, behind the scenes, but this kept popping up and stuff I was looking at today was that I don't know if they ever expressly say leprosy in the original version, 
But supposedly somebody um, asked Miyazaki about it, and he talked about uh, this is an article in the Mary Sue. Um, and it's, it's, he discusses a shocking visit to a sanitarium that was the basis of the scene. Well, with the dudes making guns. I wanted to portray people who were living with what was said to be an incurable disease caused by bad karma. Um, and basically, it was kind of, uh, he kind of wanted to show people who had a disability as, you know, still being able to uh, contribute something. He had, he had a kind of shocking and moving experience with people who had leprosy uh, in Japan. I enjoy that scene with, with Lady Eboshi and the lepers where um, it's like there's a rapport there that was kind of fun. Like we're, we're dropping in on a relationship that already exists. And I thought that was fun where, where there's the whole thing mm. about like, oh, yeah, this is much lighter. This is going to be much better. But it still needs to be lighter or whatever it is. Like, because yeah, wants, she wants to give it to the, the women. She wants to give the yeah. girls the guns. That's the yeah. whole point. She's, uh, she's not satisfied to have a bunch of guns that she can give to the men. That's not her plan. Right? She needs these weapons to be light enough, light enough for the women to be the army. She understands that if you have an army full of men, that's just that status quo. Like, the whole, that's why the women are working in the iron thing and the men are out doing like the you know the less important grunt work and you get the impression from that scene the thing that i liked about it was that this is an ongoing conversation right it's like captain kirk talking to scotty or something it's like okay this is good but i need more like you're on the path but this is not good enough or you know it's management 101 it's like you know i'm not going to tell you that this is perfect i need more from you but i'm also going to give you a little bit of a compliment and it's the like they this has been their ongoing back and forth as they're working mm-hmm. on these guns it's yeah. like it's this is good this is much better but it still needs to be better still and you get the sense that she's she's the boss but she's not you know ruling out of fear or anything like that she's got a an, a relationship that she's managing with these people who are making the the guns yeah they don't seem coerced to be right. there in the subs there's almost like a, a sarcastic line that one of them has where she says well, i'll bring you guys some sake later and somebody says something along the lines of oh won't that be exciting yeah no that's in the dub too that's a, that's all good stuff yeah yeah it's great yeah, and the big picture, big picture wise, she's investing in technology essentially because she needs all the edges she can get. Yeah. against the the outer world. She's Elon Musk. She's the, Elon Musk. That's what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, the, the the outer world that's against her. So she needs to have an army, but not just an army of samurai. She needs to have an edge on them. So she needs firearms, right? And she needs her women with the firearms. Like, so she's. Uh, you know, she's she's a modern a modern woman, relatively speaking, doing basically all the right things to try to be successful. And from her perspective, uh, the the forest spirits that are trying to prevent her from you know harvesting iron from the sand. I don't quite know why you had to get rid of the trees to do that, but anyway, in the movie, it, it makes some sense. Um, that's just an impediment to her plans, like as it would be if you were anybody in her position, and there were forest gods saying basically like you you know uh, you know. All these worlds are yours, except the forest. Attempt no landing there. You're going to be like, that's really putting a cramp in my style. And I've got the samurai uh, breathing down my neck here. So I need, I kind of need the, I need, I need your forest. Can I borrow it? Well, she's got her back against the wall a little bit because of the samurai and the emperor and all that. And this is the part too, where it really feels like I, I looked later at the Wikipedia page, which says that Miyazaki was very specifically inspired by John Ford Westerns. And I like, I had that moment where it's like, this is a frontier town. They have, they have walls. They're, they are really concerned about the outside world doing damage to them, but they've built a society on the inside, and then the threats are all these external threats, and that that uh, the people running that town, you know, they are they realize that their back is against the wall, that they can be cornered, that they that they have to fight in order to stay alive, and that is that is definitely the dynamic here, where you've got the spirits on the one side and you've got the samurai on the other side, and Lady Eboshi is really just trying to make sure that her town can survive for another day. 
And most of the people in that town don't have the option to go elsewhere. The lepers aren't going to be accepted and given jobs and have skills elsewhere. They're like, they won't receive any affection or be treated as human at all. And the brothel girls, again, they, they say several times, it's better than better than the previous life of right. being, you know, sold into slavery. And the men are there, presumably because they're the men who are willing to accept the idea that the brothel women are actual women. Like, they marry them. It's not like they're just there as, like you know women and they 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 have separate jobs and they're sep- they're separated into these gender roles but they're still there's a husband and wife relationship and it's fairly equitable when they're fighting at the end when they're you know they're under siege it's the men and the women together like i like that that quiet moment before they attack at dawn when they're trying to like fix their weapons and you know nurse the injured and they're you know waiting for the attack to come uh there's it, it again it seems like uh, for, for all of the you know Iron Town is evil because they're destroying the forest and the forest is good and the humans are bad. I have a lot of affection for Iron Town and I'm mostly rooting for them collectively. And and, and meanwhile, the forest spirits are very often pig-headed or misguided or seeming to hold on to something that we as modern viewers think is, you know, this, this whole forest spirit thing is unsustainable. We can't have giant talking animals, like, right? And so the boar are getting stupider, and the boars are literally being pig-headed and driving themselves into the suicidal mission where they know most of them are going to die, but they just want to go out in a blaze of glory. And they hate humans, and the apes don't know what to do. They're like, maybe if we eat the humans, and that's pretty gross and scary. And the wolves just want to kill and eat everything. And even though they're supposedly fighting on the side of nature, they don't come off as reasonable or wise or the type of things that like can't you know ashitaka says many times can't we all just get along and the answer from the forest gods is no we can't get along you're 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 nailing the part that i that i really like about this thematically which is one quick quick question who are the are the apes the ones that are trying to do the replanting yeah yeah okay well i mean that's one part i really like about this that seems um unusually I'm not, not to say that Miyazaki's not nuanced, but one nuanced part I like about this is that na- when we take nature as this concept as humans that you can write books about, we look at it as this balance of things and nature is good, but nature is Hobbesian. Like it's, it's, it's nature is brutal and nature is, is a, a species is looking out for what it needs to do to make it to the next day and procreate. And I thought, I think that's presented well here. I like the idea that there's this factionalism and this, this where I feel like it, it really does depart from a typical Hollywood movie in many ways is, and there's not really just this one single through line through it. You've got to navigate all these different kinds of relationships where it's not just, you know, black versus white, evil versus good. It's, it's species versus species. It's, you know, point of view versus point of view. There's just so many different things going on because each, every actor, uh, and species and whatever inside of this thing we call nature is actually, you know, greedy because it has to be. That's, that's how you survive in nature is by, is by taking care of your own and deciding who the outgroup is. And then to the extent possible, trying to get rid of them. So I like the fact that everybody has their reasons and uh, we navigate uh, through that world. I like it. And the big animals all do have something like they have, they have their base notions and the things, you know, that, that, we think are bad qualities. So the boar are arrogant and angry and hate the humans and the wolves are, are violent and want to kill everything and also hate the humans, but they all have some admirable qualities like the, the, the main boar with the crusty eyeballs. Cause he just woke up from a nap. He's also <laughs> wiser than he appears to be in his strategy and also a little bit sad and also kind of trying to look out for his tribe, but he realizes they're getting stupider and everything. And he does 
uh, you know, apologize for the actions of his brethren that he's ashamed of. And the wolves, same thing. They're savage killers, but also take care of San and also, you know, are loving towards her and tell her, try to nudge her towards perhaps going with the human, even though they would miss her and save her in the end, right? And the apes, uh, they might want to eat the humans, but they're just confused, but they are trying to replant the forest. Like, Every group, there is no one here, again, other than perhaps the Emperor, who's actually on screen, who is cartoonishly good or cartoonishly bad. And I think it makes it all the more sort of tragic or bittersweet, like the the ending, that the, the inevitable resolution is that nobody has a completely satisfactory ending, including the audience, because nobody gets exactly what they wanted. And no one in this movie deserved to get nothing that they wanted, right? But perhaps no one deserved to get everything they wanted either. So this is a good chance then to ask, what's your take on the ending? Because... Obviously, Ashitaka's goal is to kind of find an uneasy truce between nature and mankind. Um, you know, the end with the deer god collapsing and blowing away what's left of Iron Town mm. and nature sort of uh, retaking the hillsides um, sort of seems to lean in the direction of, well, that's not going to happen. Um, but I'm curious as to what your, your thoughts on that are. Oh, well, I'll point out, too, that the nature, the forest spirit, his head gets cut off and put in a box. But, put back on. But they put it back on, right? <laughs> so it's again, it's this kind of uneasy. It's not like it was before, um, but it's better than complete defeat. It is this uneasy. Well, we're both here, and it's not going to be one or the other. It's going to be a little bit of both. I think. I think. I, I, I hmm. sort of appreciated the symbolism of that, of the fact that the head gets put back on, but it's never going to be the same. So my interpretation of the ending is, so the threat you have is, so you got the Nightwalker, and it's about its head, and, and the, the ticking clock is that if the sun comes up right. and the Nightwalker still has no head, then that's it, that the forest spirit is is gone. So that's why the Nightwalker is trying to get the head back before it goes away. So they, they it, you know, the ticking clock, and they do it, what seems like it's just in the nick of time, like the sun is coming up, the head, the, the neck is coming down, Here, here's your head, let's put it together, <laughs> but rather, but... You know, and the question is, did they make it in time? Did they did they make the connection? Everything's fine. And, and my answer is, they didn't quite make it in time. They got the head back on. The Nightwalker lit up like, yeah, I got my head back. But then the sun came up, and, <laughs> and and the thing fell over, and the Nightwalker and the forest spirit and that whole thing is gone. Right? They they put the head back on briefly, powered it back up, cured the curse, but then. The Nightwalker fell on everything, and the, its natureiness went and spread all over the hills and accelerated growth on, on Iron Town and made it all green and everything. But that thing is gone. And when they say, oh, well, the forest spirit lives on, they mean, you know, like in a sort of more modern day idea of religion. It's like, well, there's not actually a deer that walks around, right? You know, you know but it's, it's the idea of it, right? So. I think they didn't make it in time, but they averted complete disaster, which was like just that black blight being everywhere, right? So they, mm -hmm. they tried to do the right thing. The humans, our heroes, tried to do the right thing and right the wrongs that the other humans had done. And they just didn't quite make it in time. And the result was the time of the giant forest animals is over. They're all going to become dumb and small and regular like livestock. The forest spirit is no longer there to power these large talking animals and everything and then so we will accelerate to the present day where the forests are just forests and some people feel there's a spirit within them but there is no literal scary weird human face uh three-toed thing walking around i gotta say that's a win because uh 
Knowing that thing <laughs> is out there would have uh, would pretty much end me. Love to get it to come to the bare spots on my lawn and step with the little three toes to make all this stuff <laughs> right? grow. Yeah, but they're just going to die again. Well, you just got to pick up the foot real fast before the dying part. Can. <laughs> but then the uh, the little uh, mashed potato uh, tree guy comes back, which is sweet. Yeah, then the Kodamas yeah. is like maybe the Kodamas are that. around too. Those guys are cute. That was that was they're my moment cute. of like, oh, here's the adorable. Uh, Miyazaki creature that's right. gonna there's our sprites yeah like when when uh when they're trying to encourage him to go in the forest and like are, are you guiding me or are you making me more lost and you're not sure like if they're on your side and of course the, the other the injured people are very skeptical of it and he's really tired because he's carrying this guy on his back and so then all mm-hmm. of a sudden the Kodamas are running by with the, the with the each other on their backs to encourage him that's so cute with their little uh, white uh, Kodama butts they're cute they're so cute I think my favorite thing is uh, with those little dudes is is the part where the um, deer god sort of descends into the hole between the trees, and it causes this large wind to blow all the and trees all go, to the sides, and their hands go up in the air, and they're all way. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Loving it. Yeah, they're 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 one of the more creepy, cute Miyazaki things. Because yes, they are kind of cute and make a cute noise. That noise, that noise is very upsetting. <laughs> It sounds like somebody overwinding a watch. The ratcheting noise, yeah. yeah. It's weird. It's like cicadas or it's, something. It's like, well, yeah, I was going to say it's almost mechanical, which is really counterintuitive because it's, but you're right, it's also kind of like cicada-like. It's a chittering kind of sound. Yeah, this movie, you know, again, being set in the quote-unquote real world with minor fantasy elements and the, the animals look realistic, every part of nature and all of the characters and things have an aspect to them that's cute, but also have an aspect to them that's true to nature. So... The wolves look like, you know, they, they, they don't look like wolves, like, you know, because obviously they're giant or whatever, but they, they have the, the hallmarks of a, of a real wolf. And some of those hallmarks are not cute. Even, even Yakul, like, is true enough to what an elk would look like. And they just make it cute, kind of like in the face area. And same thing with the Kodamas. They, I feel like they have to strike that same balance. Yes, many things in nature are cute, but they are real things. They're not just there for your amusement. They're not. You know, they're not like the soot sprites, which is just straight up like, let's just make a cute magical thing. Every one of these things is supposed to be rooted in a real thing. And so they they give they give a certain ugly dignity to everything that is supposed to be living. <laughs> like it's kind not of. going to be, you know, Sanrio or whatever. It's not going to be giant eyed anime things. Uh, anything that's an animal is going to be an animal first and cute secondarily. Yeah. And that's highlighted by the bit where uh, where. Ashitaka falls off the horse and the wolf immediately descends and tries to rip his head off, which right. is really scary. It's great. It's exactly. That's, that reads more as like, you've seen, if you have a pet dog, you see me just throw a toy down. Like, well, I've seen cats do that with mice before. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, how his head, uh, you know, it came out, came out of that without much injury is yeah. uh, another question. But, you know, there's a lot of magical healing going on in this movie. So if you have magic in a movie, you can excuse a lot of things. That's true. Is there any, because people keep saying there's things they don't understand in this movie. Is there anything that anyone didn't understand that uh, they want me to attempt to explain? I mean, that's like you saying, like, uh, you know, let, let's fight and you throw the first punch. I'm not going to get into that with you about a Miyazaki <laughs> movie, buddy. No, because I'm what, what I'm mostly uh, asking about is, like I said at the beginning. Have you removed your shirt at this point? Are you threatening me? I think this movie at this point uh, is... is like more explicable to a Western audience because it is essentially an action adventure movie. 
right? And maybe not as conventional as Castle in the Sky, but that everything that happens is fairly well explained in the movie. You've seen this movie too many times. There's, there's yeah, so true. many layers of weird to this. You know, some, some animals talk, some animals grumble. Like, there, there's so many different things where, like, I'm not, I'm not sure, I'm not going to get into the cat talking. But <laughs> I think there is a lot of stuff where, like... Why, why don't the wolves' lips ma- match what they're saying? It doesn't. Well, it was because my plex, my plex was out of sync. No, the wolves, they, they intentionally do the wolves not, like, they don't do mouth talk like the wolves just do wolf mouth motions they don't do talking no i think you're supposed to assume that they're being dubbed yeah (laughs) we we don't really understand the speech of the wolves i thought everyone in japan sounded like mostly what i was thinking of is is the idea of this movie being confusing in the same way that howl's moving castle is confusing and in broad strokes like i don't find howl's moving i I do not find howl's moving castle confusing yeah i don't either I, 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 when you said that, I was like, Howl's Moving Castle is weird, but it's weird on the face in a way where, like, once you've bought into some basic stuff about how this universe works, I don't think it's that difficult to understand at all. Well, I think it's less conventional than this one anyway. And then really? and again, in, in the broad strokes of like what's happening in the movie, what are people doing and why? Uh, you know, why are these people fighting? What are their goals in this thing? You know, like everybody's motivations and goals are fairly clear. And, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing. Nothing I feel like completely inexplicable happens in this movie. Like, I'll, I'll give you this. It's one of the it's one of the more difficult Billy Crystal movies. I'll give you that. I think that one of the things that like Howl's Moving Castle and Spirited Away have for them that that is maybe a point um a point not in uh Princess Mononoke's favor is that they're fantastical stories. So I feel like mentally a lot of us, and I'm speaking for definitely myself here, like I'm willing to let a lot go in Howl's Moving Castle and Spirited Away because it's just like, oh, well, that's like mystical hand wavium. Okay. Whereas with Princess Mononoke, hmm. I feel like I should be more in tune with what's happening because it's like a quote unquote real a real universe as opposed to like a magical universe that we get with those. And I, I don't know, like Howl's Moving Castle, I adore. It's still my favorite Miyazaki movie, um, but it makes a whole lot more sense after you go read the books it's based on, too. So I, I don't know. I think that plays into it. It's just like that that m- magicalness um, is maybe not something that we're expecting so much, and, and we get it in here. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's always the, there are two different kinds. There's the, yeah, the magic that we accept that this is a magical world and these things happen. And then every now and then there'll be something in a Miyazaki movie where it'll be sort of like, so A, therefore B, of course. And I'll go, what? <laughs> where where I, I feel like the movie is saying that it's perfectly logical that, that therefore B. And I, I will think this must be just a cultural disconnect where I just don't understand yeah. what's going on. But the plot, you know, I mean, John, you're right. It's yeah, it's an adventure story, a fantasy adventure, historical story. And I don't, I don't not understand the things that happen. It's just that every now and then something will get tossed off. Like at least in the, uh, at least in the dub version, the, you, you know, you're dead to us now. Goodbye. <laughs> where I'm like, okay, that seems abrupt and shocking. <laughs> but, but that is, but that is the movie explaining itself to you is saying like, this is the rules of this village. They say in accordance with our laws we can't watch you go you have to leave and you know like it's not it's not that you have to have expected that to happen but just you have to understand oh those are the laws of this village and why would they not be the laws of this village because we don't know anything it's just surprising though that you know right i just i was surprised by that but no i just i don't know it just there there was it 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 was strange it feels like a strange movie to me it's not like i 
I was like, I don't know what's happening. It was more like uh, parts of it. I'm like, I don't quite know why this is happening. Well, I, I, I almost feel like there's a, there's a, this is again off the top of my head, but there's almost, there, I feel like there's a distinction between how did that happen um, versus why did they do that? That that's some of what makes it a struggle is like if you're watching a truly like just a fantastical movie where, where there's a world of magic, you find this kind of um, this thing where you're like, well, I, I don't need to know why everything happened or what caused everything to happen. But then sometimes you think like, you know, why did somebody do that? Or, you know, uh, is there something I'm missing that would help me understand the relationship between these two people or why this person is deferential to this person in, in that way. And that's when I find myself in a movie like this, which you know, I agree, John, is a, in some ways a fairly straightforward adventure story. Uh, it's just that I feel like there's a lot of stuff I'm, I'm missing and I find myself, there's, there's another like new seemingly cultural thing that I'm missing while I'm still kind of processing what the last one was. Uh, Spirited Away, uh, no, Sen? What's her No, not Sen. What's her name? Uh, Chihiro. Uh, Chihiro? Chihiro, um, yeah. You have her. You are, you experience the world through her. Um, Howl's Moving Castle, you've got Sophie. There, there are, there are people who stand in, in some of the, the weirder movies, there are people who stand in as our proxy. And I'm not saying it needed it for this, but like in those movies, like you can tell, like me as a dumb American, I can, I can watch and see how she responds to things and go, Oh, apparently it's not port part of Jap- Japanese folklore that your parents turn into ravenous pigs at right. a deserted theme park. Like you have the, the POV of going like when she's shocked by something, I know that it's <laughs> something weird. Am I supposed to find this weird? Well, it's hard to say because Ashitaka never reacts in any way to anything. <laughs> I think that's a good point. Well, uh, Ashitaka's deal. Ashitaka's deal is that he he uh, like he comes into he's from wherever he is the east or whatever, and he comes to this place, and it's obvious he's the west. He's not familiar with these people or customs. He's trying he's trying to pay with things that aren't even money, right? He doesn't <laughs> know like he's not up to snuff, and his way to deal with that is to just kind of lay low, be chill. Like, avoid people if you can, right? And so he is a fish out of water, but his way of dealing with it is not going into town and being like, look at all these crazy people, and what are these samurai doing? What's the deal with this iron town? He's very stoic, and he's very sort of isolationist. Who's coming up with this stuff? Except for the, hey, I'd like to try that bellows part, which is a little bit out of character for him. Well, he's trying to impress the ladies. I mean. Oh, is that it? He does take off his shirt. He's a pickup artist, obviously. Oh. <laughs> he's, trying, he's nigging. He's nagging. No, he was being he was being nice to them, and he says, "You guys work hard." Hey, it's the heads of forest gods in baskets getting coffee. What's the deal with that? <laughs> you just throw a drink on her. What yeah, is well, with these forest gods? Yeah, he, he does. You know, he does take you off. You walk shirt. on the bellows, but your leprosy on the guns. <laughs> Who's coming up with this? Why do they put the lepers up top? Why do they put them down below with the bellows? I don't Who know. Who designed this fortress? You're a samurai. Grab a broom. Sweeping, sweeping. Who is the Japanese emperor who came up with that one? <laughs> no wolf. No wolf. There's a good uh, a good example of the uh, the English script versus the regular one. So when the samurai are, are, are doing the village or whatever, in the actual Japanese one, they, he, he just says, oh, look, a battle or whatever. Um, in the American one, because they weren't sure that the audience would be able to read what's going on, he says a battle, and then he waits and says, no, a massacre. And, and there's mm. a scene where the samurai are like hitting a bunch of fleeing villagers where they bring down one of those big long sword things on the back of a villager. I'm going to yeah. try to find the frame. It and for the like longest the time, I thought back, they were like splitting open the back of the villager and they're like bones and guts were coming out, but I think it might just be a backpack. 
So does the baby ohm die? Is that what you're asking us? Is if the no, baby I'm ohm dies? Like, I'm trying to see if is this a moment of gore or if is this a moment? If you freeze frame it, you'll see that the rice flies up, <laughs> up and to the right and over. Yeah, that's right. It's probably yeah. fine. Yeah, I, I gotta I gotta go find it now. But uh, I'm trying to figure out exactly how gory this movie is because I I think I know where all the dismemberments and beheadings are, but I have to decide is this another one. It's not PG-13, Gory. I have to admit that the dismemberments and beheadings are nicely done in the sense that they're super smooth and it's almost like a cut of meat. It's like mm-hmm. when that guy yeah. gets beheaded, it's almost like you're looking at a ham. Yeah. That's what I said. It looks like a Warner Brothers ham. Yeah. Blood squirts out of most wounds. But... It mostly played, not for, not for laughs, but lighter. It's a lighter moment, believe it or not. Yeah. As opposed to the more dramatic moments when, you know, Nago or whatever is, is puking blood. Well, there is nothing lighter than watching a guy's head pop off like a cork out of a bottle of champagne. <laughs> yeah, because then, then his friend looks at it and he's like, nope, I'm out of here. <laughs> a demon. He just turns that horse right around. It's like, I was not, not going to deal with that. There it goes. So uh, before we wrap it up, I want to go around one last time and have everybody give their uh, kind of final, uh, final take, final summary of their feelings about Princess Mononoke. Oh, let's start with uh, with Marlon. Oh, hello, hello. <laughs> yeah, you guys, you guys, you guys should have caught me like six years ago when I when I seen it and it made more sense to me. Uh, I, I like it a lot. I, I, I like these movies, and I, I know to be honest, if if I'm being honest, I part of what I really enjoy. Jeez, ah, John is probably way better at breaking this up into groups than I am. But to me, there are the Kikis and there are the Totoros. And honestly, the Porco Rosso. Porco Rosso is a pretty straightforward movie in a lot of ways. But, you know, there's something special about stuff like Spirited Away and this and Howl. Howl's, I mean, I think Howl's the sleeper. I, that, that is such a terrific movie. But there's something, um, part of the fun of watching these for me is that feeling of disorientation and that feeling of... In order to enjoy this movie, you have to let go of your idea that you'll understand everything in it, and you have to kind of take it on its own terms and just go, okay, like, that's a thing of potion, and now his hair has changed, and now mm-hmm. she's young, and that, and so there's mashed potato people in the trees, and okay. There's something about, like, letting go of that, that, uh, you don't, you don't get that in so many Hollywood movies, and, uh, I, that is one thing I love about these, is, and, and I feel, I feel rewarded by, by making it through these movies, and, you know, whatever it is is what it is. And, um, I don't know. I think there's something kind of magical about these movies. I, don't, I mean, t- two things I, I want to highlight that I guess we always bring up at some point. Um, the, the music, the music and the art, uh, the, the music and all of these movies is so amazing. I can't believe how often a theme from one of these movies will like pop into my head. Like the, the Totoro tree song will just like come into my, my head sometimes. And, and my daughter was just saying, like, <clears throat> do you think they have one person like, just does the trees and just does the backgrounds. And I'm like, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised because those are really, really good trees. And, uh, and you don't get that, that quality and, and care of like every frame of this looking as good as it does, even though it's incredibly disturbing so many times. So, um, I don't know. I mean, this is a super weird movie, but it's just, it's just another, another one of these like just immersive, super weird experiences that I'm really glad I got to have. So, uh, Aline, we, I think we're to you now of uh you got some final kind of overarching thoughts about this before we wrap it up i i'm kind of glad i got to talk with you all about it because um i know i did more listening than talking but it's kind of helped me deconstruct it a little bit um i struggle with this movie i think i that's kind of clear from what i've been saying because it's just it's hard it's hard for me to watch this movie and so um 
I don't know, maybe I'll come back to it more now, but uh, I think it's worth watching at least one time. But I, I just, it's not so many people, this is their favorite Miyazaki. And I really struggle to, to understand that because I just, I struggle so hard with it, but I'm glad I got to talk with you all about it. Yeah, I agree. Steve, what about you? I watched it for the first time a couple of nights ago, and then I got through probably about half of it today. And um, my thoughts after having watched it just the one time, uh, with the caveat that, you know, that's not really enough time to properly digest it, um, was that it was unsurprisingly really beautiful. Yeah. Uh, the animation is, of course, superb in that oh, that uniquely Miyazaki way. Um like I, I was marveling on the rewatch today about the, the subtleties of um, like there's the scene early on where the demon boar is coming out of the forest and uh, we're zoomed in real close and we're seeing sort of the brush move. And then just really subtly on the fringes of the image, it gets darker and and it's just touches like that are everywhere in this movie. It's 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 really amazing the kind of work that they did on this and and uh, like I was I was also marveling at little things like the where the samurai are fighting the villagers early on and uh, and there's flashes of their swords in the sunlight as they strike each other and that's just it's it's just wildly gorgeous and I I'm really looking forward to watching it again just to catch more of those details. Um but as a whole, I got to say I didn't really love it. Um like I have some of the other Miyazakis we've watched. Um, like early on, I, I wrote down on in my notes that it is such a treat to watch one of these movies and just have no clue what to expect because the narratives are so frequently very different from from what we get out of standard Hollywood animated films. Um, and maybe a little of that is I, I was a little bit ruined by the fact that we just watched Spirited Away, but uh, I, I spent a fair amount of the movie, like some of you, a little bit confused about the mythology and trying to understand, you know, what makes the dear God tick and how does this spiritual thing work? And, you know, in Spirited Away, the whole thing was so wackadoo that I just didn't care if it all made sense. I could just let it sort of flow over me. But with right. this, the narrative all made a lot of sense. And it was set in, you know, a legitimate real time period somewhere on Earth, not in some weird fantastical realm. And so, like, the crazy crap was actually kind of frustrating to me because I understood right up to the edge of where the, the wacky stuff happened. And, like, I, I could feel myself reaching to try and understand what's going on with, with these weird mystical elements. And the fact that I couldn't, it, it was kind of kind of difficult for me to... to uh, sort of deal with that um ashitaka i think is kind of blah as as far as protagonist and miyazaki goes he's he's almost too perfect i don't is there a, is there a male analog to the mary sue is he like a jerry lou or something <laughs> he's he's he always makes pretty much the right decision you know even if it's you could say it's maybe not the best decision to get himself cursed at the beginning, but it's really the thing that he has to do as the hero. And he never really makes a wrong turn. He always, you know, has the the right thing in mind. And so he, he really doesn't make any kind of a journey at all. Um, you know, other than he falls in love with a wolf princess. And uh, so, you know, I, there, there wasn't a whole lot uh, as far as character development that, uh, that I got to enjoy. And uh, as I mentioned before, the, the uh the man is destroying nature themes in this one are a little 
a little on the nose, even for Miyazaki, and he's pretty much on the nose all the time. But, um, you know, here, this feels like the chapter in Atlas Shrugged where Ayn Rand just goes, uh, no, you guys aren't really getting it. I'm just going to spend the next hundred pages just telling you what I'm <laughs> what I've been trying to say all along. But you people are too stupid to figure out. And uh, and so I didn't I didn't dig that element of it either. Um, so of the Miyazaki's we've seen, I would probably put this as my least favorite right now. Uh, again, with the caveat though, that I've only seen it one and a half times. And I have to say on the second viewing today, even having just seen about half of it, I was already appreciating it more than I did the first time. So, but that was, that was my kind of uh, quick, quick take on it after just watching it once and kind of still having my head spinning afterwards. Yeah, I uh, I'm not going to belabor it. I I'm basically right where Steve is, which is um it I put this in not knowing anything about it, having not seen it, kind of wanted it to wash over me. It the kind of weird combination of real and fantasy as opposed to just being kind of totally wackadoo like you said with something like spirited away made it uh made it a little more challenging some of that might have been my expectations i didn't really know what to expect um some of it might have been frame of mind i'm a real believer that sometimes there's a movie that you could you could love or hate or feel nothing about entirely based on your mood and your surroundings and that you know maybe watch it again and see if your feelings change um but uh, i i dearly love some miyazaki movies i i'm starting to wonder if 80s Miyazaki works better for me than 90s uh, 2000s Miyazaki. It may be that simple that the earlier stuff um, just kind of for whatever reason aligns a little bit better with what I'm looking for than this stuff. But I'll watch it again. I mean, I bought the I bought the Blu-ray. It's a sunk cost. I'm going to watch it again. I'm I want to understand these <laughs> movies more. But I definitely didn't come out of it thinking, oh my god, this is amazing. So uh, that's that's where I am. Um, but I, I want to leave the last word with John. So based on all of your feedback, I th- my best guess for uh, why the the movie struck you as either confusing or frustratingly, like like Steve said, like you understood all of it except for that just little edge, and it's frustrating not to have that little bit. I think, and and the reason I tend not to feel that way about this movie is when I think about it and, and think about things we've discussed today. There's a lot of moving parts in this movie. Like there are a lot of characters, there are a lot of factions, let alone individual characters, and there are a lot of things that are going on, a lot of dynamics between all of them, and a lot of those dynamics only have a line or two or a look or an implication. Um, and so that's where I think perhaps me having seen this movie a thousand times uh, makes it seem simpler to me than it actually is. Because if I, you know, you people who are watching this movie for the literally the first time. Watching this for the first time, I know I didn't absorb all of this stuff because there's just so much going on, right? There, there is just you know, there's not a lot of time lingering, getting settled, settled into a pattern, you know, like with Kiki, where like you establish your characters and then they do things, and that's you know, it's like there's a lot of motion here. So I, I would say that uh, if it's the type of movie that you think you want to watch again, I think watching it multiple times will help you appreciate the parts that are good and sort of let you internalize the internalize the moving pieces to the point where you can you'll have the bandwidth to indulge in the subtleties without worrying about the larger things moving around um now all that said uh there's a reason i left princess mononoke to this this point in our you know our watching schedule and it's because i think most of the movies we watched before this are better overall as films in particular the, this is probably a controversial opinion among many miyazaki fans i think nausicaa does a very similar story mm-hmm. yep. better than this yeah 
right? Yep. But this this movie, like this movie, in my mind stands out as the and maybe it's the '90s thing or whatever. As this was this was like not their attempt to go big, but like the budgets are getting bigger. Uh, the visuals are getting more lush. This was the first movie where they dipped their toe into using CG. The Nightwalker was originally CG. Uh, Miyazaki hated it and had it hand drawn, right? But there are some computer or computer generated or computer aided scenes in this movie oh, yeah. that don't stand out that much. No one mentioned them. They said they said ten ten percent of it was CG. It's the it's the Futurama stuff. It's the you know we need to do a camera move and so we're going to map a hand drawn image on a shape and then do a you know do a move around it kind of stuff. You can. You can tell they, they don't. They don't do quite that much of that stuff. They have some actual generated CG in here, but again, no one mentioned it, so maybe it didn't stand out. Part of that is because the hand- and, and you don't see it as much as Howl. And Howl, you can really see the the, yeah. the big castle is definitely CG. The, and and also, I think uh, we mentioned the music. I love the music to this movie. Oh yeah, Joe Hisaishi hits it out of the park with this one. This is his best score. Yeah, I think I agree with that. About- and what he does in this movie is, again, much more conventionally Western, uh, dramatic film music scoring. Like, that you could almost put this into, not that it sounds like Star Wars or Indiana Jones or whatever, but it fits in that mold. Like, it does not seem particularly different or alien or, or you know, like, it is it is very conventional. So, the, the parts of this movie that... You know that stand out. These, the, you know, the, the beautiful art, uh, the animation, the the action scenes, the music, mm-hmm. uh, the characterization. All of that I feel like is that has potentially higher highs than if you go look at Nausicaa. It looks like looks like an eighties animated movie, right? It doesn't it doesn't reach these these peaks, but I feel like it's a much more coherent whole, and it it does a better job with a very similar story. So I've always been not conflicted about Mononoke. But just like for me, it's like it's when the it's when Miyazaki came not down to my level, but it came over to my neck of the woods and said, <laughs> here, here are some familiar elements that that will be comforting to you in a movie that is also kind of weird like me. And then the, the final bit is that this movie is less comforting, less comforting than most of the movies that we've seen. Again, the ending, the ending is not it's not a happy ending. It's not a sanded ending, but it, like this movie for all of its on the nose uh you know uh, nature is good humans bad like in the end no one is completely satisfied and that's what they, this movie just wants you to live with it wants you to appreciate the good but understand that bad things have happened and things have been lost and they're never going to be regained and it's not and there's no happy time still image uh, credit sequence in this one to make you feel better about yourself yeah exactly right it's not that kind of movie and and uh and again, Nausicaa's not, you know, Nausicaa has happy time ending credits things, but, you know, everyone is still dead in Nausicaa. Like, it's, it's a post-apocalyptic world, so how happy can it really be? You know, and I, I have a personal connection to this again with my kids watching it all the time, and I <laughs> I tried to ask them before I did this podcast, like, what do you want me to say? To say, do you have an opinion on this movie that you want to share? Uh, my daughter felt like it was too much pressure, but she was uh, the most enthusiastic requester of this movie watch it many many times now part of that i think is because she wanted to see the movie with all that blood right because it's like <laughs> seeing it seeing a movie that you're a little bit too young to, to have seen and you ask to see it again you can't believe your parents are letting you see this but at a certain point when she's getting a little bit older and everything she's asking to see this movie over and over again because she likes it uh and i and again i think it's because it has tradi- more traditional action scenes and you know complicated interesting things that seem adult to children right um so 
you know, I, I, my affection for the movie is partly tied up for my affection for my kids and how much they love this movie and how much we've watched it together and everything like that. But in the end, like I, I agree with Jason about like perhaps not the the opinion of the Miyazaki eighties versus nineties versus two thousands or whatever, but there are definitely different errors. And part of part of the error of latter day Miyazaki is that he was seems like he was more not more sad and angry, but like kind of less able to be to like recapture the simple joy of his younger films and then maybe maybe that's just an increase some would call that an increase in sophistication of filmmaking but others might say like you've you're just not you're 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 old and more angry and, and bitter maybe <laughs> he was always angry and bitter who knows i can imagine he was chain smoking his way through all those movies too yep. but he, he 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 talked about this uh, did you see where he he talked about especially the war in yugoslavia did you did you read about that mm, i don't think so well, he, yeah, he, so like, again, I was just Googling around for this, but he had basically said that like, because of the war in Yugoslavia, he had, he had started to feel like things like Kiki were something that he couldn't do again, that he couldn't, he felt like he could not do that same particular POV child's view of the world uh, because of just the way the world had become. Yeah, and, and I think that's him being true to himself as an artist, but it definitely shows through in the movies. And like, and as the budgets, I feel like budget is another thing. As the budgets increase, it gives you more freedom to have more flab and whatever. But uh, anyway, all, all that said, I think I think Princess Mononoke actually is a, a pretty good movie, but it doesn't give you the same things that the old Miyazakis do. And it marks, I feel like, the beginning of the era where he has more than enough rope to hang himself and tries to tries to tell increasingly sophisticated stories with uh with varying results oh and the other thing i'll point out for steve's point about ashitaka being a bit of a cipher so the title of the movie is not the adventures of ashitaka like the title of the movie is princess mononoke and the question of the movie is who's the main character you think it's got to be ashitaka he's the one we follow he's the he's our point of view character through the whole movie or whatever uh but if i think if you ask my daughter who's the main character of the movie she would say san she would say the wolf girl like and i don't think hmm. that's supported by the movie but uh, he is mostly there as a as a foil for the plot, as a as a as a plot conveyance device, and f- tr- you know he has a struggle and he tries to mediate between them. But everyone else in the movie is much more of a sort of active participant in things that are going on. Like he's caught in the middle of the whole rest of the movie, and and I think you could make an argument that the main character of the movie our son lady eboshi maybe or like son lady eboshi and jigo right because he is not he's not driving this plot he just went west and found himself in the middle of it and tries to do what he can to make things right but he doesn't have that much of an arc other than you were cursed and now you got to try to deal with the curse what's what's funny is that and this is wikipedia so it must be true says that um they were considering two titles for the movie and miyazaki preferred the story or the legend of ashitaka and uh, the other producer said, ah, how about Princess Mononoke instead? <laughs> it says princess. Yeah. Kids love princesses, especially ones that spit blood. The princesses. I, you know, I want to, John, I want to go back to um, what you said earlier about got a real release, Disney, serious dub, lots of famous actors. When you were saying that at the beginning of this episode, I was thinking to myself, I was sort of chuckling to myself about like Disney release lots of actors you've heard of let's go out to the movie theater and watch this movie and then people sitting down in whatever <laughs> like in 1980 98 99 whenever it was released in the u.s and being like what 
<laughs> well, I have to assume that's the reason for the ridiculous PG-13 rating. It's a stay-away rating. Well, there is a lot of blood. Like, there's I think... a lot of decapitation. Well, yeah, but John, when I was 10 years old, I saw a man in live action rip his face off to the bone in a PG-rated movie. So. I, I feel like this is, this is even though it's animation, the, the, if the things that happen in this movie happened in a live action movie, it'd be rated R. Right? But just because they're hand-drawn then you just get to say, oh, it's PG-13 because it's not real. Like, it's a very upsetting movie. Like, if you show this to children, it's very upsetting. Again, just the look of the animals not being cartoony enough, it's upsetting. Well, we have completed another Miyazaki. Where will we go from here, forward or backward? That's that's one of the great mysteries of John's choices, because John has a method to his madness, maybe? <laughs> yeah, what's your next favorite? He's like a Cylon. He has a plan. I, I, did, I did absolutely have a plan, and it, you know, spoiler alert, my plan was we're going to watch the best movies first. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So I, I don't know where we... Do we go to Howl's Moving Castle next? So it's, it's all downhill from here is what I'm hearing. Well, you know, people's opinions vary. I'm just going by my opinion. Some people really dislike Nausicaa and love this movie way more. It's just that's not where I come down. You haven't done Howl? You haven't, have you done Ponyo? Uh, nope. No, no. Now, Ponyo. Oh, boy, that is super weird. What? Loves ham. Ponyo loves ham. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, that's, I'm, I'm kind of excited to see Ponyo just because, although it is super weird, it's kind of delightfully super weird, which I, it works works for me. We got Por- Porco Rosso is out there. Uh, Howl's Moving oh, Castle God. is out there. So oh my God. We got, we got some choices. And if we ever, you ever want to talk about aviation and uh, working with the Nazis in aviation, The Wind Rises is also available. I remember, I did Whisper of the Heart, too. So I'm not, even though this is supposed to be right. Miyazaki, it's, it's kind of Studio Ghibli and related property. So I could do, I could do Grave of the Fireflies. You don't know what's going to happen. We could. We could. Uh, we could do Arietti at some point, too. That's, that's a nice movie mm-hmm. that is not uh, too weird. Anyway, but that's for another time. But for now, I just want to thank my panelists one last time before we say goodbye Marilyn Mann thank you so much for being here thank you friend Steve Lutz thank you thank you Jason and keep in mind a wolf's severed head can still bite Mm. (laughs) indeed indeed it can it's good to know Aline Sims thank you thank you for having me and John Syracuse thank you as always for selecting the movie and guiding us through it I'm glad we were all able to see with eyes unclouded by hate yeah there's another unsatisfying (laughs) thing from this movie (laughs) that never comes up Except twice. Totally they comes it. up. It's repeated like seven times. It's a major well, it's theme. It's repeated, but it's yeah. But what does it mean, John? The problem. The problem with all these factions is they all hate each and other. Thanks to everybody out there for listening to the incomparable. <laughs> I've been your host, Jason Snell. Uh, we'll keep. Uh, also, what does the cat talk? What what happens there? Anyway, yeah, what, we'll get to yeah. that. We'll uh, later. If you wear the skin, do you no. like? Do you like become a? Do boar? you speak the language of that? We'll see you next time. No more Marvel movies, though. Goodbye.